synonymous with something. And when we give them a name, it means something. Uh, if we call someone Shakespeare, we're probably, probably, probably good at writing or good at some sort of creative thing, right? Uh, if we call someone Einstein, it means we're probably commenting on their intelligence and how smart they are. And one of the names we get from the Bible that's synonymous with something is Judas. Uh, when we call someone Judas, we say they're a Judas, it means they're a betrayer. They're bad, they're evil, they betrayed you. Uh, and I've always found that interesting. In fact, I've, I've always found the person of Judas to be interesting. Um, I think when I look at Judas, it makes me ask some really big questions, some really tough questions that I don't always know how to handle, um, don't always know how to do. How can, someone, how can someone be so close to the Master, be so close to God, and, and still not believe? How can someone have, have seen everything Judas saw and still not get the point of who he is? How can someone sit at Christ's feet, hear everything, eat the bread and fish that he just miraculously made appear, and still be confused of who Christ is? And so I, I struggle with Judas. In fact, for a long time, to be honest, when I looked at Judas, I was afraid I saw myself. I was afraid, you know, am I like that? Do I sit at the master's feet? Do I read my Bible? But am I really following him? And, you know, I had to struggle with that. Would I fall away? Would I fail to follow Christ? Big questions that are hard to deal with. And so what we're looking for today, my question today, how can we avoid the path of Judas? How can we avoid the path of Judas Iscariot? So we first meet Judas at his highest moment when he's at the top of his game, right? Uh, Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4. This is the first time we meet Judas. Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4, when he is called as one of the disciples. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles were these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So Judas starts out strong. Judas starts his faith very strong. At this point in time, thousands have heard Christ speak. Thousands have listened to him teach, and yet only 12 have come to the backstage meeting. Only 12 have come to lit more, to sit at his feet more, to know more. He's one of those 12. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. He was sincere enough to be allowed into that special circle, and he was interested enough to want to be in that special circle. And that's what I see. I see a sincere faith here. I see someone who legitimately wanted to know and was generally trying his best to get it. And this is why I started to see myself, right? But like so many others we all know, based on the end of this story, we know Judas isn't going to stay there. We know he's going to start strong, but eventually he's going to fall away over time. And what we're looking for today is that pattern that people in our real world follow. People in this is the real world, excuse me. People that we see in our world every day follow. Either friends from church, the pastor, no longer with us. Strong Christians who are really strong in their youth, but then grew up and went away from it. Even maybe our own family. 
people we took to church every Sunday, people we did all the right things with, and yet they didn't stick with it. And why is that? And that's where we are with Judas. Their faith starts strong. Judas's faith starts strong. He's been given authority to heal and cast out demons, and this is unreal. This is, this is incredibly rare. This is incredibly rare. In fact, before this point in time in history, there were only five people who have ever been able to perform miracles. Okay, you think you know who they are? You're thinking about it. Who do you think they are? First one's easy, right? Moses. Moses. Joshua with him, right? And they started it. Then it was Elijah and Elisha. The fifth one's a total oddball. Anyone know the fifth one? It's actually Samson. Samson, total oddball, doesn't fit in that group at all, really weird that he's in there. But there's only been five people ever able to perform miracles. And then this guy, Jesus, shows up. And the things he's able to do blows everything out of the water. Stuff un unseen, unheard of before. Sure, Elijah raised the widow's son. Jesus raises like three people from the dead. It, it's like maybe a long work day for him. Meh, right? Sure, Elijah's able to keep the oil pouring for like maybe a few hours there so she gets enough to feed everything. Jesus feeds 5,000. It doesn't even break a sweat doing it. Sure, Elijah's able to make an axe head float. Jesus just walks on the water. I mean, he's able to do so much more, so much grander, so much bigger than anything anyone has ever seen and no one at this point in time has seen. It's been 400 years since the last prophet. That's not even the last guy to perform miracles. He's just the prophet who spoke for God. And Jesus is so powerful that he is able to give his authority to Judas to use remotely. You can go over there and use and tap into my power. This is unreal. The emotional high. If we put ourselves there for that moment. The emotional high that Judas must be feeling at this point in time is unreal real. The power Judas can wield. The things he can do that no one has ever seen before. And we can connect this. We can connect this with new Christians, with baby Christians, people who have just become come to Christ. This power, this all-consuming high, this passion, this burning inside of them. And it's an unstoppable force. It's unstoppable. When I first became a Christian, I was ready to go move mountains. Go put me in the deepest, darkest Africa. Go send me, do with me whatever you want, Lord. Please. I sat down and I read half of the Bible in like three days. Just sat and just consumed as much of it as I could. Because that passion inside, that emotional high was so big, was so important. And we can see Judas was feeling that. In fact, the first month of being a Christian, I started attending a mega church in Parker, where I'm from. There was hundreds of people, multiple service. So you can think thousands of people listening to this message, right? And before the service even started, before the sermon started, there was like a rock concert beforehand. The lights are flashing, there's fog machines, everyone's swinging and swinging, crying, right? The beat is bumping hard, and oh man, how cool is that? And then this young guy comes out. Young, he's maybe in his 40s, dressed nice, looks good, not a hair out of place, right? And he starts telling me all these wonderful things about how Jesus loves me. 
about how I'm good just the way I am, about how I don't need to change it, if I would just slow down a little bit and appreciate Jesus a little bit more. And that's designed to keep that emotional high going, to keep it going. It's designed to get you hooked and to get you pulled in. In fact, there are churches out there today that will still tell people they can perform miracles, that they can do what Jesus did. And I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but they're lying. That time is over. But the whole point is, there's this huge emotional boost in there, this emotional high that Judas must have felt. Wow, I'm a part of something so much bigger than myself. So much bigger, so much grander than anything anyone has ever seen. And eventually, eventually that fire fades. Eventually it starts to go away. It has to. We have to live in a sinful world. It can't be pure joy all the time. We have to deal with this world. In fact, that's the step to maturity. That's what settles it down. The best comparison I had as I was thinking about this was a new relationship. You've ever seen a, a new couple who's been together for maybe like 30 days, like a month? They're kind of annoying. <laughs> Baby talk back and forth, kissy face. It's annoying. But a relationship of 30, 30 days looks vastly different than a relationship of 30 years. But that passion, that intensity is still there. It just looks different. In fact, that work that you've had to do to keep the passion is actually what's made you love them more. It's important that that settles so that we're no longer just riding that emotional high. It's a good thing. That's how God made us, so that we can go back down. We have to go back down. In fact, we see this in the Bible, too. I don't just have to look at the relationship. We can look at the transfiguration. Peter is on top of the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus appears in all of his glory, like he will at the second coming. All of his glory. Whoa. My words would not describe it. Peter can only fall down and he can only say, you know, we got to stay here. Let's put up some tents. We're living here now because this is awesome. And God says, no, no, listen to my son. No, we cannot stay here. You have to listen to the word. You have to listen to what he's saying. And they have to go back down. They go back down and they immediately have to deal with a demon-possessed man. That's that story. That's that story. If a person never gets to the point of mature faith, if that emotional high is what they're looking for, if that's all that matters, then they have failed. Then we have failed as a church to disciple them and to bring them up. This is the problem with megachurches. This is why I couldn't stay there for long. Megachurches are not designed to disciple people. They're not designed to bring them to mature faith. They're designed to keep them hooked to keep them looking for that next big high. In fact, any gathering of thousands of people is not going to deal with maturing anyone's faith. That's not their point. And what we see, because we know how this story ends, we know where Judas goes, we can see that Judas's faith never matures. He never gets past this point. He's constantly searching for that new high. That new big emotional moment that he's going to do. So sure, his faith is sincere, but his faith is in his emotions. 
His faith is sincere, but his faith is in the power that he can wield and the things that Jesus lets him do. His faith never reaches past himself. He is still the focus. He is still all that matters. You see, emotions, emotions and miracles are poor evangelists. They do not bring people to God. Thousands saw Christ heal. Thousands ate his miracle bread. Thousands. He fed 5,000 people at one setting one time. And yet still, when he was on trial, they called out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because emotions and miracles don't bring people to mature faith. Romans 10, 17 tells us, faith comes by hearing the word, by focusing on the word. Judas never gets to the point where he is focused on Christ's teaching. We could look at another parable of Jesus, the parable of the, the sower. Judas is the seed planted on the rocky soil. He springs up quickly. He looks really good. It looks strong. But the first time there's any kind of trial, the first time there's any kind of temptation, he withers and dies and he's gone. So here's the first step. The first step to avoiding the path of Judas. The first step, focus on God's word, not on our emotions. Focus on God's word, not our emotions. Now, don't get me wrong. It is really fun. It is really cool. It is really exciting when we see those moments of God at work. Those are awesome. I'm not trying to discount those, but they are not enough to build of faith. They are not enough to support a faith. We can't go through life, we can't mature with only those. In fact, when we do, it becomes a works-based faith. All we're doing is seeking the next high, the next big thing that we can find. So, the story progresses, and we next meet Judas when he is clearly unhappy with Jesus. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. This story is also told in Mark 14 and John 12. This is the next time we see Judas. Some time has passed. We're now at the end of Jesus' ministry. We're now at the end. He's on his way into Jerusalem to be crucified, to be killed. And it's a beautiful story. All right, let's read verses, Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. And when Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in, for in pouring this fragrant oil in my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. It's a very beautiful story, where this very, very expensive oil is poured over Jesus. <coughs> And it's a very expensive oil. It's about, a, about a year's wages. About a year's worth of wages. Uh, but it's symbolic. It's meant to prepare him for burial. Meant to prepare him for his death. Meant to prepare him for why he came here. 
And we see the disciples begin to complain. Now realize that this is actually not out of character for the disciples at all. They've basically bickered and complained and argued for about three years now. At one point in time, they go get their mommy to get in the fight for them. All right? That's what they've done for three years. They missed the larger point to focus on this minor point going on here. In fact, the Gospels, all of them except one, the Gospels tell us that it's many disciples who complained. Many disciples who complained. And again, if we're being honest, if we're being honest, i got to say, I think I would have complained too. Put myself at this point in time, in this moment, I think I get what they're saying. Anyone who's spent time with me realizes that I'm very concerned with waste. That money is definitely something that's on my mind and bothers me a great deal. It can definitely be an idol that I place in my heart. I know that about myself. I could definitely see myself complaining about this too. I think everyone in this room could. I mean, we just spent years, we just spent the last three years, Jesus talking about helping the poor, about loving people more than we love ourselves. Didn't you just tell a rich young ruler the other day to sell all his stuff and give it to the poor? You just said that. And now you allow this oil to be poured over you? I get what they're going for here. I can understand it. Again, I start talking about Judas, I start seeing myself, and that becomes scary. It becomes scary. You see, only John, only the Gospel of John, names Judas as the instigator. It tells us that Judas is the one who got them all riled up, who got them upset, who started spreading these things. Judas, not only beloved by Jesus and part of the Twelve, had actually become a leader of the Twelve. Not the leader, but a leader. He controlled the money bag. They trusted him enough to give him control of the money. They listened to him. When he started to complain, they started to complain too. Judas sets them off. You see, the disciples loved Judas too. They saw one of their own, just like them. The disciples loved him. Nobody, nobody would have suspected Judas of wrongdoing. And this is also where we learn of Judas' intentions. You see, John tells us that Judas stole from the money bag. He would steal. He cared more about taking care of himself as opposed to taking care of what they were doing. Again, I can put myself at this point in time. And I can imagine this. I worked at, I've worked at jobs where you're not allowed to accept tips. People trying to hand you tips. Can you imagine having this ability to heal people? The first time someone comes and tries to hand you a coin, the first time, sure, oh, no, 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 this is, this is for a better work. No, this is in the name of Jesus. No, I can't take that, right? No, I can't do that. What about the second time, the third time, the fourth time, fifth time, sixth time? What about the hundredth time? Which we're like, fine, I'll take it, but you know what? I'm just going to put it back. It, it's, it's part of all of us. It still goes to a good thing. It's still a good thing, right? That's natural. It's something I think all of us would do. If I'm wrong, I don't mean to accuse you of anything, but it's natural. And eventually, after you put so much in there, it's like, you know, he's walking down the street, maybe he sees a new pair of sandals he would like to buy. Well, I'm the one putting money in this bag. I'm the one doing the work. I think I'll just take the money out of this bag. I think this money is mine now. You see, I imagine at this point in time, I imagine at this point in time the miracles had stopped. I don't know if Judas is able to do them anymore. Because at this point in time, front and center is the cross. That's where we're headed. And yes, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. But what had Judas done lately? And probably better question, what had been done for Judas lately? 
So the miracles were over. And all that's left, when the miracles stopped, all that's left is Judas's need for money. All that's left is his desire to take care of himself and the fact that he thinks he's owed the money in that bag. You see, Judas never loved Jesus. He loved himself. Judas wanted himself glorified, not Christ. And we can even see this in how they're complaining about this. We can even see this. I would give the money to the poor. I would help someone else. I would do something better with this. I love the poor more than Jesus does. When the emotional highs went away, all that's left was Judas's need to help himself. So the next step to avoid the path of Judas, the next step that I can see in here is to focus on Christ, not ourselves. To focus on him. How can we serve him? How can we further his kingdom? What can we do for him? Not for us. It's not about us. Let my name be forgotten. Let my name be trampled in the dust because it doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus Christ. As a result of this discontent, as a result of this grumbling, we see Judas become the betrayer. <coughs> Matthew 26, we're going to go right, back, right down to verses 14 through 16. 14 through 16. Then one, of the, then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And the story continues. We're going to go down a little bit more to verse 20 to 25. 20 to 25. When evening had come, Jesus sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said so. Even now. Even at the moment of betrayal, even in the upper room, hours away from being crucified, nobody believes it could be Judas. Nobody believes it could be Judas. They're all saying, is it me? Am I doing it? Am I about to betray you? I, I, I'm a... No one believes it could be Judas. Ju not, not Judas. Judas controls the money. Not Judas. He's our best friend. Not Judas. He's the loudest supporter. He's done the most miracles. Even now, as we sit at the, at the Last Supper, Judas is very possibly at the right hand of Jesus, dipping his hand into the same cup. It couldn't be Judas, not Judas. I always find it odd right here. I always find it odd that even John doesn't say anything. If John knew Judas was stealing, if John knew he was taking money out of that bag, why didn't John accuse him of something? I know it's Judas. He's doing things that are wrong because even John cannot believe it would be him. It can't be Judas. You see, realize... Every book of the New Testament, every book warns of false believers. And if God's word says it will happen, 
then we can be assured that it will happen. Judas looked like the best of us. False believers can look like the best of us, but we have to stay grounded in God's word. To avoid the path of Judas, we need to be discerning, and we need to have a sober self-assessment. We have to be honest about what sin is. John knew that was sin. He should have called him out on it. We need to be honest about ourselves. Am I holding up Christ, or am I holding up myself? Am I grounded in the word, or am I grounded in what the word makes me feel like? And we have to know the genuine Christ. We have to know who he really is, so that when the false Christ is presented, we can know to reject it. We have to know the true Christ. And after Judas betrays Jesus, he becomes hopeless. We'll go to Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5. Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Hanged himself. You see, Judas knew the truth of Jesus Christ. He knew. He had sat under his teaching for years. He had seen all the miracles. He had heard all the teaching. He had eaten the bread and the fish. He had seen him walk on water. He knew. And that's why he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Jesus doesn't deserve this. He knew. But he refused to accept. He refused to understand who Jesus is. It's not about emotional highs. It's not about miracles. It's about recognizing and accepting the capital T truth. Whether we like it or not, the only path to God is through Jesus Christ. The only way, the only way to avoid the path of Judas is to recognize the truth of Jesus Christ. We don't serve a God who promises to make our wishes a reality. We don't serve a God who promises to fix everything in our lives. We serve a God who says, I am truth. Follow me. And if you are here today, if you are here today, then you know the truth too. Despite the hardships, despite the struggles, despite everything going on in our lives, you know the truth of Jesus Christ. Understand who he is, accept him as our Lord and Savior, and repent of the sin that keeps us in bondage. Only through acknowledging Jesus as our Lord and Savior can we avoid the path of Judas. And so we conclude today with the consequences of Judas's actions. I'm going to go to Matthew 27, verses 45 through 50. Verses 45 through 50. We can't get this close to the crucifixion and not discuss the most important part of Christianity, most important part of what we believe, of Jesus' work. Judas leads us to the darkest moment in history. Let's read verses 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shakabathani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Judas brings us to the darkest moment in history, literal darkness as the sun disappears and refuses to shine. Emotional darkness as Jesus hangs on a cross by himself, abandoned by his friends, forgotten by the thousands who have heard him and seen him. By himself. And spiritual darkness. As Jesus becomes sin, he becomes my sin, what I have done. And God cannot be in the presence of sin. So God must turn his back on Jesus. He must forsake him. And for the first time in all of eternity, all of eternity past and all of eternity future, for the first time, the Father and Son are not together. Because Jesus becomes my sin. Jesus takes the penalty that I deserved. And the disciples don't know what to do. Where are the disciples at this point in time? They're all fugitives. They could be the next ones up on a cross. Their master is gone. The person they have followed for the last three years is dead. Their fellow disciple, their leader, their friend, the one they trusted the most, he just hanged himself. And the world is shaking. The world is literally spinning out of control and falling apart. Evil appears to have won. Evil appears to have won. But we know this isn't the end of the story. We know three days later Jesus would arise. The tomb would be empty. And what appeared to be evil's victory would become God's greatest triumph. You see, when we think evil has won, in our darkest moments of tragedy, of loss, of frustration, of confusion, in our darkest moments, know that that isn't the end of the story. It doesn't end there. If all we see in ourselves is Judas, it doesn't have to end there. That's not the end. God is in control. God has this. God puts us right where he wants us to be. God is in control. We avoid the path of Judas by trusting in our God. Trusting in his goodness, in his mercy, and in his grace. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you came to earth and while we were still sinners, you paid our price so that we can be reconciled with you. Thank you, Lord. Please help us to stay connected to you. You are the vine. We are the branches. Help us to stay connected to your word, to stay grounded on the truth, and to seek you. Once again, Lord, we ask that you help those that are hurting this week. Help us to weep with those who weep and to be your representatives to the hurting and the lost. Help us to have a sober self-assessment and to focus everything we are on you. Help us to trust you more. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us and all that you give.